I don't know if those of you online heard the cheer that went up in the building when we said that we've got the Bibles back in, back in our seats. But it was good to hear, and it's good because some research published just this week uh, talking Jesus is that those people um, who are trying to find out about God, 24% are going to look in a Bible. That should make us very pleased. 26% are Googling. Well, well, we all do that, but, you know, don't look there. Look in the Bible. This is the inspired word of God, and we've got it back in our seats. If it's in our hands, we need to get it into the hands of those people who are looking for it. So... I think it's very appropriate that the prayers that we had this morning are this, a picture of a large building with an imposing facade, but inside it was empty and unused. How that was this building for a while and all of God's buildings. God may be saying, I want to use all of you so that the building of my kingdom will go forward at this time. Be welcomers. Can you be a welcomer? Can you say, I've got the word of God, you know, I just read this, I heard this, I saw this, I was listening to this, and just tell somebody else, bring them to the coffee shop, there are Bibles there, go and, you know, share it, share it, share it. People are desperate. And the the prophecy goes on, be welcomers so that the building can come alive. I also want a building up of your life so that people can see that I make all the difference to this world. So make sure the Bibles don't stay on the the seats. Make sure they get into you. There we are. (laughs) Here ended the the first seven. Yes. (laughs) Well, we're in our series, Shaping Worship That Is Pleasing to God. And we've got to that point where I've been given something called the Gloria, which you all know what that is, don't you? Well, if, you, if you're used to the Holy Communion service, you'll have been saying the Gloria and perhaps not realising it. Um, but we'll be looking at that a little while later. But I've also been given that reading that we've just heard uh, given to us by Roger of Exodus 20, verses 1 to 11, the start of the Ten Commandments. Where do we go from here? Let's pray. Lord, order my thoughts that they may be your thoughts and speak through me that we might hear from you and glorify you in the church and in this nation. All for your glory, Lord Jesus. Amen. No gods but God. Well, where does our reading start? Then God instructed the people as follows. I am the Lord your God who rescued you from slavery in Egypt. Do not worship any other gods beside me. Now, this first commandment is the foundation on which all the other commandments stand. And because it's such a foundation stone, it's no accident that Jesus was tempted over this very commandment in the wilderness, where Satan was telling him he can have all the glorious land that he could see if he'd only kneel and worship him. But what does this commandment mean? Why will God settle only for an exclusive relationship with his people? So in our series, Ordering Worship That Is Pleasing to God, what does it mean for us that we worship him alone? To understand, we need to look briefly at the framework of the Ten Commandments, and in particular, the concept of covenant. You see, very often we see in the Old Testament, and I think we do the same, the mistake of wrenching the Ten Commandments out of their context, as though they were a series of unwanted, unsolicited, arbitrary demands with the threat that if they're not obeyed, the people will be wiped out. 
Yet that is not the case. These commandments are given in a particular place, at a particular time, as part of the long relationship that God has with the human race. And we can't start reeling them off, though I have to admit, I think I would do the same, by starting at verse 3. Do not worship any other God beside me. You see, the first two verses are critical. They go like this. Then God instructed the people as follows. I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the slavery in Egypt. As I say, they are key to understanding all of the commandments right across the Bible. Is the concept of covenant, that solemn binding agreement between two parties with duties and conditions on both sides, usually around loyalty and obedience. For us today, I guess the most familiar example that we have of this is the traditional marriage ceremony. Both parties solemnly pledge an exclusive binding and permanent loyalty to each other in the presence of witnesses. And the official record, well, it's the certificate and the rings to act as both that symbol of covenant for both husband and wife. The giving of the Ten Commandments fits into this same pattern of covenant, of relationship. God gathered the people before him, and he said who he was, outlining what he had done already for the people of Israel. And then he announces the covenant and then lays down the covenant conditions, the Ten Commandments. The two stone tablets on which the commandments were written acted as both symbol and certificate of the covenant for both sides, for God and for his people. So what about God's side of the covenant? Well, God reveals himself, and it's crucial to know truly who we are dealing with when we make a contract, a covenant, when we enter into a relationship. And God tells them. And God tells us. He does the same for us today. He says, for one thing, he is God, the one who makes and upholds the whole universe. He is awesomely powerful and mighty. And the people of God are being offered a covenant by the one who has made everything and who knows everything. Israel could trust God to keep his side of the bargain because he could never be taken by surprise and because he was all-powerful. And he's not only God, but he's Lord as well. And to us, this might seem just like a title, but Lord is another translation of Jehovah or Yahweh, the name which was given by God, his name, to the people, a personal name, the name that he was signing on the contract, on the covenant, that the people might know him by name. And knowing God's name, his private name, gave them access to him, the God that they can relate to and know. And a bit like when we say, well, we know somebody, we're on first name terms with somebody, we know them, we're getting to know them more and more. So it was with God and his people. And this idea that God is knowable is behind this first commandment. The command to worship only God is given not by a remote, unknowable God, but by a person who wants to know you, 
to wants, he wants to enter into an exclusive relationship with each one of us and with us, his body. One who can also be offended and hurt when we, his creation, choose not to enter into that covenant with him. And secondly, God goes further than just saying, I'm Yahweh, I'm God, you're God, you can trust me. He reminds them what he has already done for them. I am the Lord your God who rescued you from slavery. He comes to the covenant with a track record. You see, their recent history has shown that God can be totally trusted. He showed he was that redeeming and rescuing God. All the dramatic events of the Exodus have just taken place when God invites his people to come and gather. Those ten plagues and then that dramatic and true crossing of the Red Sea. By that, he was showing he was more powerful than even the mightiest gods of the pharaohs. Loyalty to him is not a risk. So we see when we come to God making a covenant with the people, he doesn't just demand exclusive worship and total obedience. He gives Israel his personal name and reminds them what he has done for them. You know me. You can trust me. I've earned the right to have your exclusive trust and obedience. And this is God today to us, to you and to me. Do not exclude yourself. We were looking yesterday in, on the wonderful Alpha Day that many of us were gathered at, that this is for everyone. This is for everyone. He's inviting you and I to come to him. He does not demand that you and I bow before him without first showing us what he has done for us. It says in Colossians, he has redeemed us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into his wonderful, marvelous light. And what about our side of the covenant? I said it's for two parties. God has said who he is and what he's done. What God seeks simply from us is for us to agree that we will worship him and worship him alone. To enter into a relationship where there are no third parties. It's a wholehearted commitment and response to his love. The people enthusiastically accepted that. And I wonder if we are saying, yes, 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 I want that. We know that throughout the Old Testament, it goes on that there are short periods of pure worship, but the people hankered after other gods. And so rather than an exclusive covenant relationship, they wanted a sort of spiritual open marriage into which anything could be invited Oh, the prophets grieved over the failure of the people to keep that beautiful covenant. Jeremiah the prophet, in speaking to the people, spoke of a new covenant, not written on stone, but on the hearts of the people. I wonder how much that struck a chord with the people at the time. And with Jesus, 
That promised new covenant became a reality. It was a covenant sealed in his own blood. Around the table in the upper room, some of the great themes of covenant come out again. Instructions to remember, to love one another as he loves us. We have symbols of bread and wine and those instructions to remember the covenant. And yet, although the covenant has changed, the conditions stay the same. We are to love God exclusively. We are to put him before, not just idols, but all our ambitions, all our interests, and even every other person. In that way, all other things will fall into place. And we are to keep Yahweh's commandments, not just outwardly, but in our hearts also. And maybe as I'm saying that, that seems hard to us, harder even than the old covenant. And yet, if we have said yes to Jesus Christ as our Lord and come to a living faith in God through Jesus Christ, his Son, then he has put his spirit within us, the spirit that cries, Abba, Father, and the spirit that enables us by his power that is at work within us, to fulfill the demands of the covenant, to love the Lord our God and to love him alone, to worship him alone. So worship that pleases God is worship that celebrates and praises this covenant and the very one who has made it and what he has done for us. So what might our worship look like Well, I couldn't help remembering the words of the psalmist that say, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due to his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Worship that gives God the glory and honor which is due his name. That is our fitting response. And did you know that we are inheritors of one of the oldest hymns sung by Christians, sung that first Christmas night started off by the angels? And we, have, we can trace it back to the third century of Christians singing or speaking out the Gloria. And today in our churches, we often um, at communion say the Gloria or sing the Gloria. We are called to glorify our maker with our hearts and souls. And we sing the Gloria and we say the Gloria because of the absolute joy of knowing Jesus as our risen Lord and our Saviour, the one who is worthy of all praise, the one to whom we can and should ascribe all glory. And so I say to you, brothers and sisters, Shall we say the words of this ancient of ancient hymns in humility, but also in unity as brothers and sisters, one body gathered in worship of our Lord? And I don't know about you, but sometimes I've said this by repetition, 
but feed on these words. I was going to print them out and say, take these home and make this your prayer this week. And then I remembered our little eco-church plaque. And I thought, you're perfectly capable, capable of using that famous tool, Google, and finding the words of the glory. Get it on your phone, put it up on the collective, and use this as your prayer this week. I will be. Let's say these words. Glory to God in the highest and peace to his people on earth. Lord God, heavenly King, almighty God and Father, we worship you. We give you thanks. We praise you for your glory. Lord Jesus Christ, only Son of the Father, Lord God, Lamb of God, you take away the sin of the world. Have mercy on us. You are seated at the right hand of the Father. Receive our prayer. For you alone are the Holy One. You alone are the Lord. You alone are the Most High Jesus Christ with the Holy Spirit in the glory of God the Father. Amen. You know, the glory of God is the magnificence, the worth, the loveliness and the splendor of his many perfections, which he displays in his creative and his redemptive acts throughout history. And yesterday, again, as I witnessed people coming to the Lord and coming back to the Lord, that redemption uh, happening over again and again. How beautiful. We make known the glory of God as we say yes to him and live out our being in the world. And so we are to give glory to God in our worship for him and him alone. He is the magnificent, lovely, almighty one who has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into his glorious light. And if you're sitting there and you don't yet know that, come and speak to me. Speak to one of our prayer ministers. Just receive him and say, yes, Jesus, I turn to you. You are the one worthy of all our worship and praise. You lay down your life for me, for all of us. That we too might lay down our own selfish lives, but pick up your risen resurrection life and live out that life to the glory of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us continue in prayer to that God, the God who is seated at the right hand of the Father, who intercedes for us, who is our intercessor and the one to whom we pray.